Now is the time to turn rage into action. Every fraction of the degree matters. Every voice can make a difference. And every second counts. I wanted to panic. I wanted to act as if the house was on fire. Because it is. From the pandemic to climate change, going it alone is simply not an option. For those who have eyes to see, for those who have ears to listen, and for those who have a heart to feel, 1.5 is what we need to survive. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the final episode of our podcast series, Accelerating Climate Solutions. I'm Ruth Richardson, Principal of Open Blue Consulting and former Executive Director of the Global Alliance for the Future of Food. And I'm Stefan Schurich from Foundation's Platform F20. As mentioned, over the past few months, we've hosted a number of guests from around the world talking about the hard topics at the heart of the climate debate. These conversations were insightful, challenging, eye-opening, and actually fun. All of them focused on the power imbalances and injustice at play and urged us to be better global citizens. Most of all, Stefan, I appreciate how our guests have come to the table with tangible actions and solutions to the climate crisis. Their remarks demonstrate that no one solution is a silver bullet. Meaningful action requires a portfolio of actions to be taken at every level of government and across every sector. That's right, Bruce. And, and the idea is that before digging deeper into specific subjects, we wanted to get a glimpse of what our guests actually think would be at the heart of the problem. Like when you look at the United Climate Summits, the COPs, for example, you can easily get lost among thousands of work streams, working groups, and uh, the issues discussed. But ultimately, at the heart of the effort is the question of trust. The COPs are ultimately about trust and maybe about proxy battles between um, different energy types, but that's really at the heart of all the discussions. And in each episode of our podcast, we started, therefore, the conversation by asking our guests that question, if you could press a button and change one thing, what would it be? This final episode is now about revisiting those answers that were indeed quite interesting. Our first episode looked at the role of the G7 in times of interconnected crisis. And in the first episode, we spoke with Dr. Martin Frick, director at the Global Office of the World Food Program based in Berlin. Here was his answer to that question. I think it would be that every farmer on this planet would be treated as a crucial person to keep our global ecosystem working and would be remunerated accordingly. Super interesting, Stefan. And there are two things that I really like about Martin's answer and two things that I want to put a focus on. One is that farmers are treated as a crucial person. And to me, this gets yeah. to the governance in decision making. It's that farmers are not just consulted, but they're a crucial part of decision making with a seat at the table. That's one element that I think is absolutely critical. The other thing that is really critical about his, his answer is remunerated accordingly. And this really gets to the economics of the food systems and other systems, but the food system for sure. 
And it made me think of once when Peter Bucker, the head of the World Business Council on Sustainable Development, was on a panel I was facilitating. And he said, we need nothing less than a radical overhaul of capitalism. And I think this really points to the need to really transform the economics of food systems, of energy systems, of all the systems that we're seeing um, breakdown in currently. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And it was also interesting to see that he really had this answer quite immediately. So he really thinks that this is actually one of the problems that really lies at the heart of the discussion on how we treat global ecosystems and the future of food production and so on. So he was he was really serious about it. So I agree, yes. Well, Stefan, in our second episode, we were joined by Richard Black, a senior associate with the Energy and Climate Intelligence Units in the United Kingdom. This episode was about how renewable energy can help the world reach its zero emission goals. Here is what Richard had to say. With renewable energy, as with many other things in life that are not connected with energy and climate change, if you could press one button, it would be to have people make decisions on the basis of evidence and not on the basis of, of sort of predetermined political position or an out-of-date belief that they've garnered in a chance conversation in a coffee room somewhere. So that's my, that's my button. I'm going to create a button for evidence-based policymaking. Yeah, I think this was really an answer that I found really, really also very impressive, I have to say, because it seems very obvious. It seems obvious that political decision, of course, also decisions in the headquarters of the corporate world are evidence-based and evidence-based uh, in that sense that science actually is not being questioned or so but that all we do is actually based on this is where we are at, this is where we should be, this is the trajectory towards it, this is where we need to change things unless we are willing to really put the whole planet at risk because that's what we're going, or that's what we are actually discussing. So I found this answer quite, quite insightful, saying, yes, well, that would be a good start if policymakers and decision makers in the headquarters of the corporate world would actually build all their decisions on science. Yeah, and I just want to put a finer point on that, Stefan, because I was going to say I really appreciated that Richard didn't say science, he said evidence. <laughs> I've been working with a group on a set of what we're calling polycrisis principles, how to navigate the polycrisis. And we have a, an epistemology principle, which is still being drafted, but um, essentially it's, it's saying that we need to embrace and in integrate multiple ways of knowing and understanding where we're at as a human community, including academic and scientific, indigenous, traditional, spiritual, creative and artistic. There's so many different ways of knowing and that's all evidence. And so scientific, critical, absolutely central. And yet we also have to place centrally these other ways of understanding. Well, that's of course a good point. And it makes me just rethinking that when you say science, that can be everything. But I think in climate change, for example, it is more the scientific consensus that should lead our decision making. Because you can always find, of course, different scientific studies and you, you know, you find, you may find yourself listening to science when you follow this study or that study that are completely different in what they say or controversial or whatever. 
But if it's about a scientific consensus, and I hear your point on evidence-based and that there's more to knowledge than scientific research. But if you look at science and if you build your analysis and your decision-making on science, then it should be really, you know, built on the scientific consensus and the consensus on, yes, we have a problem with climate change. We know where it's coming from. And yes, we only have a few years left to really change course unless we are willing to really put the whole planet at risk. This is a consensus. This is a scientific, an overwhelming consensus. And I think that's that's really important. We could have a whole series on science and evidence. <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, not sure to what extent this belongs to the session here, but I think the point of evidence-based versus or including scientific facts, of course, is where do you draw the line? Like, you know, what is the determining part of knowledge, what you, what you describe as knowledge, and what is, mm. and where does it leave you room for actually moving ahead? That's yeah. definitely something I would, I would find interesting when you highlight the broader understanding of evidence-based policymaking. That interesting, Stefan, I think that if you're talking about consensus, if you put the emphasis on consensus, a lot of the evidence is building that consensus. It's not going to be contrary to it. You know, farmer knowledge, indigenous knowledge, they're all saying the same things as the scientists. So our next guest was Sarah Jane Ahmed founder and executive director of the Financial Futures Center and finance advisor to the Vulnerable Gentry Group. She joined us in episode three to talk about how finance could be a lever for climate justice. And here is what Sarah had to say on the question of what she would change if she had a button. If we were looking at it from a more practical implementation perspective, the one thing that I would look to change would be the failure of the Bretton Woods system to really understand and articulate the climate emergency that we're in, because that set the tone for where public resources would be going to. Yeah, obviously, what Sarah was referring to when she said, you know, updating Bretton Woods or changing the Bretton Woods system, the Bretton Woods system obviously is a name for the financial architecture the monetary management system of the world invented like six or 70 um, decades ago, where climate change was not factored in. And obviously, this is now the most pressing issues. And the mandate of multilateral development banks or the World Bank is not is not really um, fit for purpose here. So the point on questioning the current financial architecture and the financial system, basically, and updating it so that the huge challenge of addressing climate change has been factored in. That's really a hot topic. It was actually also discussed at the last climate summit in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, and it will be a subject of future summits because it's really need it. So I think that really hit the nail on his head. What I would add, Stefan, is just, you know, understanding that we built these systems. And as you say, they're not fit for purpose. And in fact, we're being given a gift here, watching these systems break down, because that gives us an opportunity to transform them. And we might not do so if we weren't seeing the absolute collapse of these sorts of systems that are not fit for purpose. Um, so I completely agree with you that, 
you know, it's an old system built on faulty assumptions. And we now have an opportunity to really confront what doesn't work and rebuild systems that do work. We built these systems. We can we can take them apart and we can rebuild them. And I think that for me is one of the main points. And one thing, if I may add this, what emerged in many of our conversations throughout the whole first series of our podcast is that we need a systemic approach or, you know, a couple of systemic approaches, basically saying um, we cannot just address the energy sector or the biodiversity question or the food sector, but that we really see it in context with its impacts in in all other sectors and that it really requires a systemic approach. That was really subject of many conversations we had. Moving on, episode four was about climate narratives, why slogans and stories matter when it comes to mobilizing public and political action around climate change. Joining us was Sven Egenter, Executive Director of Clean Energy Wire, and Tinley Wynn, a freelance correspondent focusing on food systems and climate change. Here were Sven's and Tin's answers. There are other things in, in humans' lives that for all the pressing needs to take climate actions are for a lot of people very much more current and much more existentially threatening. And, and that's why I'm saying if I had a button to push to give us a bit more leeway to focus on taking the right steps, that button would be to end violence um, and in particular to end warfare. If I can press the button and change one thing is that I would like climate action to be free from entrenched corporate interests because then politicians can really do what they've been elected to do. Sven answers obviously not just makes a lot of sense. And if, you know, that really would be a magic button if you could delete all violence immediately you can still you know you could still have all controversies but you would basically delete any kind of violence i think that would be really a great gift for the world and i think it was also a result of the time when we had this conversation and we're still in that time where we see a war unfolding in front of our eyes in europe and this was in the I think in the um, first months after that war started from Russia against the Ukraine. And that I think this was also a result of his immediate reply. If he could press that magic button and change one thing, then this would be really having our controversies in a nonviolent way. Absolutely, Stefan. And I think for me, maybe one of the undercurrents behind both of these responses is the need to connect the system's view understanding that all these things are interrelated and we can't separate climate change from war and conflict, from, you know, the broken food system, from public health pandemics. They're all part of, you know, what people are recognizing as a polycrisis. These are crises that are coming together and are completely interrelated and interconnected. So I really appreciated being given that scope The other thing I really loved about um, Tin's answer, just in terms of entrenched corporate interests, I think it's an important point. And, you know, the corporate world, the business world is such a critical player. It's a, a critical stakeholder. But to me, it's about the right role. What is the right role of stakeholders and how do we create a more level playing field with, you know, civil society, non-government organizations, women, youth, 
you know, the religious community, farmers, you name it. How do we make sure that we're setting the table properly so that everybody has the voice? They say, if you want to change a system, invite the system into the room. Um, but you have to do so. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Ensuring transparency, accountability, responsibility, all of those things. So I, I really liked her point about that. In episode five, we talked about the potential for philanthropic foundations to take the lead in climate action. And obviously, this is a big subject also for the foundations platform F20. But funding for climate change mitigation efforts is still way too low. It accounts for less than 2% as most recent research has just unveiled. So that means that 98% of philanthropic money is not addressing or not really contributing to the mitigation of climate change. And I think that is something that we would question again in our next series, because I think we've also seen a couple of bold statements from foundation consortia that are putting more money now into renewable energy, for example. But this was really at the heart of uh, episode five's discussion. And we discussed this with Nira Nundi, who is the co-founder and partner of Dasra Foundation, a strategic philanthropy organization in India. And here's what Nira would do if she had a magic button to change one particular thing. It would really be to accelerate social change. And I'm going to date myself, but I don't know if you remember those VHS, those video machines that used to put those tapes into, and then you'd press like fast forward and it's like, and then you'd kind of get to wherever you wanted on the actual video. I just feel if there was a way to press a button and just move this pace towards change where we need to get to, I think if we could fast forward, that would be phenomenal. So Stefan, I think the point about um, philanthropic giving is, is a fair one, that um, the amount going into climate change is low. And, you know, it's a challenge to philanthropy to, to step up and invest more in climate solutions. I think the other thing that jumped out for me was the word social change. Yeah. Because, you know, really, if you look at social change theory, it's about building momentum, building movement, trying to, you know, push agendas in a loosely connected network to reach a tipping point. And we saw that with the fall of the Berlin Wall. We saw it with women getting the right to vote. We saw it with the rollback of the apartheid regime in South Africa. You know, this was not some centralized plan. It was really trying to build a movement. And philanthropy is so beautifully poised to be able to fund that kind of movement building. So I really liked the emphasis on social change and the connection between social change and philanthropy. And I should add that having been with Dasra at their office and having had the chance to hear a bit about the work that Dasra is supporting, especially in India, especially on the subject of different aspects of social change, actually, I find this even more important that the answer was basically saying, you know, not delete all injustice in the world. So when she had this button, she says, you know, we basically put this fast forward of the change we want to get in terms of creating more just and more equitable lives in the world. And I think that's, that's interesting because it's also shaped by a certain part of a realistic view on where we are at 
So there are, you know, the willingness to really create just lives and, you know, to create um, equitable living conditions for people is there, but we are way too slow. And she would basically just fast forward this. And this is, let's see to what extent the G20 or other countries can contribute to this. But I know that Dasra is really um, working on this issue a lot. And she probably considers her own work as the attempt to fast forward things. So very, very interesting. Fantastic. We need people like Nero out there doing that. (laughs) Wonderful. Episode six was one that's close to my heart. Uh, We discussed food systems and the true environmental, social, and health costs of what we eat. Our first guest for that conversation was Pavan Sukdev, former president of World Wildlife Fund International, and now founder and CEO of Just Impact in Mumbai. We're also joined by Sarah Farley, Vice President of the Rockefeller Foundation's food team. Here's what Pavan and Sarah's magic buttons would do. I would press the button which says it's mandatory for every corporation on the planet that's of any size to actually publish their true cost accounting results. In other words, publish their impacts on the environment and on society in addition to their impacts on shareholders. The button I want to push would really shift the balance of power within the food system. What does that mean? It means less corporate consolidation. It means more thriving, small and medium-sized farms. It means greater voice and influence of farms, farm workers, food producers, indigenous communities, local communities, those experiencing the greatest hardships of the many intersecting challenges in climate, environment, nature, health, and food. What do you think, Stefan? Right. So I think the huge subject of true cost accounting, it's actually not a subject, but it's actually something that we actually should do in all our business. We should factor in all costs. And that is, of course, a really, really important game changer. If all costs, if all so-called externalities would be factored in into how we run our business, how we sell our products, then this would be a huge game changer because then we would accelerate our journey towards a more circular economy, I believe. So I think I, I, I really like the answer of uh, true cost accounting. I couldn't agree more having devoted many years of my life <laughs> working with Pavan and others building what's called the TEAB Agri-Food Framework, which is the most holistic, comprehensive, true cost accounting framework for food systems. I'm a big fan of the need for true cost accounting as, again, one of these key leverage points. And I was really happy to see it move forward within the context of the United Nations Food Systems Summit in 2021 and actually become a coalition of, of broad actors really trying to advance that. I also just want to note for us and for the listeners that we keep hearing common themes. So what comes up in Pavan's and Sarah's answers have come up in the other answers, which are about the economics of change and about power and vested interests. So I just want to note these themes and um, comment on the fact that we, we keep seeing this come up across all of the episodes. And I'm not entirely sure whether I understand that right, but Sarah's point on shifting the balance of power uh, within the food system, to me that also echoes a little bit one of the first points that we made that Martin Frick said, that farmers um, would need a crucial voice. I think this is this is referring to the fact that, of course, in the current food sector, there is 
highly industrialized procedure. You can't even call it farming anymore. It's really an industrialized process. And that many, many farmers with all their knowledge are basically not even having a chance to run their business because of this highly industrialized way of, you know, producing food. And I don't know if that makes any sense. You're the expert, (laughs) Ruth. But to me, there's an, you know, there's a parallel between um, Sarah's answer and um, answers we've heard before. And this, this goes back to many folks that have talked about really needing to, you know, to meaningfully include those that are going to be at the sharp end of these changes, sharp end of climate change, sharp end of hunger, sharp end of war, conflict, and and how do we include them in discussions, debates, solutions? I think that's partly what Sarah was getting at, I think, in terms of the power imbalance. And it's certainly what Martin was talking about, um, ensuring that the farmers who will be at the sharp end um, have a seat at the table. The next episode was called Divest, Invest, Engage, Financial Approaches for Climate Action. And that was addressing the question of whether it is better to divest or whether we should rather, those who can, invest in companies and raise our voice uh, and what the best level of engagement is when it comes to shifting the trillions or the billions, for that matter, um, within the companies and within the corporate world. And obviously, the global financial system uh, has a couple of powerful tools that can be maybe also used in terms of climate action and used for climate action. And our guests talked about how responsible investors can actually make sure their money is directed to progressive climate action instead of just reinforcing business as usual paradigms. As our guest for this episode, we had Catherine Howard, who's the CEO of Share Action, and Asad Rehman, executive director of the war on want and a very experienced person on many many years of the united climate conferences and international movements so we asked both of them if they could push a magic button and change one thing here is what they said we no longer have a legal regime in the global investment community that really doesn't have any space to acknowledge the importance for each of us of social and environmental outcomes? It's a very tricky question, right? When we need to change everything uh, within a very short period of time. And so if there is one thing that I think dramatically makes a huge difference, it's uh, a movement of people that is global in nature, that is coalescing around a vision, but has a framework of political demands, including, you know, what remaking or reimagining a new global economy looks like in the face of this climate and ecological crisis, but also as a strategy for both building power and being able to effectively use power to be able to shape some of those outcomes. And again, the theme, Stefan. <laughs> so Catherine's, the quote we pulled just so beautifully connects to the previous one, about true cost accounting. We're talking about social and environmental outcomes and impacts. And true cost accounting is a really powerful tool to get there. I think that her quote also speaks to the need for new investment frameworks. And I was really excited to learn that one of the Global Alliance members, uh, a foundation, 
actually adopted the Global Alliance's seven principles as an investment screen to make sure that their investments were lining up with the important outcomes of diversity, of resilience, of inclusion, etc. So I think it's happening, but very in very a very small way, and we need to kind of bust that open. The other theme, of course, that we're seeing in Assad's comment is the movement, the movement of people, right? The shift in power, ensuring folks have a seat at the table and trying to build that momentum towards solutions. So again, it's just, for me, really encouraging to see these common themes reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. And for our listeners, I'd just like to encourage you to listen in again into that episode, because one of the questions that we also discussed was when we said, you know, what would be actually really the rate limiting factor then ultimately, you know, if we look into um, the financial architecture and how corporates are run at the moment and what the business model is and that, you know, what's the main problem? And Assad really said it very loudly, it's profits. So I liked his answer a lot because he actually, you know, this was, of course, provoking Catherine to say, well, you know, um, profits are not necessarily wrong. So it's actually a very interesting mm. episode, uh, encouraged to uh, listen into it. And of course, profits, you know, I'm probably a bit more with Catherine. Profits do not necessarily create problems as long as all costs are factored in. So I think both answers in a way make a lot of sense if you really have a true costs that are exhibited in the price for products and not just um, externalized where um, any costs of you know resource consumption can be externalized and then run a business of this. Yeah, no, that was a fantastic debate. I really, really appreciated that episode. And I really loved our penultimate episode which was particularly pertinent given the discussions that just occurred in Egypt at the COP27. This episode was about global climate commitments and whether platforms like COP actually lead to meaningful progress. Reflecting on that question was Dr. Salim Hook, director of the International Center for Climate Change and Development. His answer to this magic button question was one of my favorites. Well, the button I would uh, choose to press, and this is actually what I... I do as my day job, is to make every citizen on planet Earth aware of the scale of the climate problem that we are just at the beginning of. And unless we take our citizenship of planet Earth as our primary citizenship over that of our country or our city or the place that we live, we will not be able to do justice to tackling this global problem because it is unfortunately going to be bigger than the COVID-19 crisis we had for the last few years and the Russia-Ukraine war that we have now combined. We haven't seen anything yet and we are certainly not prepared. That's really at the heart of the problem, I think, that many people still don't take climate change seriously or they probably don't get it or some probably really choose to ignore or choose to just um, oppose it and say, you know, it wouldn't exist. So if we had this button and um, Salemu would put that button and suddenly everyone would really understand the significance of the problem and uh, its root causes and where the solutions are, that would be probably the biggest game changer that we had because then ultimately we could expect 
us to collaborate and to see, to acknowledge, you know, we have a problem. We are very vulnerable to that problem as a species. So if we want to survive as a species on this planet, we better get this problem sorted. His magic button is very challenging, isn't it, Stefan? It's that every citizen on planet Earth is aware of the scale of the climate problem and that we identify as a citizen of planet Earth over and above everything else. Here's another whole series to which we attach the question, how? How does one do that? And there are lots of smart people out there with some great answers, but that would be another wonderful thing to dive into. But I mean, Ruth, we never invented this question to that level that we would actually try to find um, the best way to program the software for that button. Obviously, obviously, you know, I know uh, about a couple of other answers we had in our first uh, series that I would find very, very challenging to design, um, you know, so, um, but you're right. Of course, um, how would you, how would you get there that everyone would have the same understanding? And even if they had, they had, would pro- you know, even if they had the same understanding of the problem, the conclusions were, again, very, very different and very much depending on the environment and the situation you're faced with, obviously. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. But it does point to the interesting roles of, for instance, civil society, critical role within trying to build awareness and movements, governments, you know, how do they set up processes in a different way um, so that they actually have more pervious boundaries and they're bringing, (laughs) bringing folks into the conversation. Media, of course, huge topic of discussion around awareness building, um, the role of media, So anyway, it would just be such a rich thing to dig into. And yeah, really appreciated Salimul putting that one on the table. At our ninth episode, we actually looked at the question of what governments can do, because obviously um, the question is, is it really the right addressee to talk to governments to say, you know, they should be committing to this or that when we know exactly that some of the governments face a lot of pressure from the corporate world or from companies saying, you know, if I do this, then the companies will probably leave the country and so on. The whole question of like, you know, are actually policymakers designing the level playing field for the corporate world to to do their business or is it sometimes the other way around? But if you're addressing governments, then you of course can, of course, or you of course can address or governments, and then you are referring to the United Nations and to UN climate summits, or you can also look at those governments who are representing the biggest emitting countries. And then you quickly come to the role of the G20, the G20 countries, where there are 80% of the global emissions are accumulated, and the global GDP is roughly by the G20 at 80% as well. So Probably the keys for sustainable development, the keys for a regenerative future, the keys for climate action are with the G20 government. So one of our guests was Ilham Habibi from Indonesia, and here's what he had to say. If you would have taken uh, the alternative of renewable energy more seriously earlier, because the technology was around since many, many decades, in many cases, I think would have a different situation right now. There's a lot of catch up in many sectors to do. In many countries, 
again, that is, I think it's a big part because we underestimated the problem. And at, at the same time, uh, we're too comfortable in our individual comfort zone with the current technological status of our energy delivery or energy systems. Our second guest on this episode was Ulka Kelkar, director of the climate program with the World Resources Institute in India. And here's what Ulka had to say. For me, it has to be finance. If I could press a button and make it happen, it would be increasing the flows of climate finance from developed countries to developing countries. So Stefan, to me, these speak of financial flows and the important principle of equity. You were just at COP and watching carefully what was going on there. And I know there was a lot of discussion of, for instance, loss and damage, which I think is central to what Ulka and Ilan were talking about. Um, what were your reflections on where the COP discussions went? Is there hope? Um, did we actually make progress? Well, I think the last week was a good week for multilateralism. And if we're talking about governments and the role of governments and the possibility to collaborate among governments, I think the format of the G20 is there and also the United Nations Climate Summit at least concluded on something that is exhibiting the willingness to collaborate. And I know this is way from what would be needed and this is by no means sufficient when you look on global emissions and when you look on the current trajectory that leads us to a to way beyond the two degrees temperature increase but when the reference for judging last week's g20 summit and when the reference for judging the outcome of the un climate summit is what was at stake then i think we can be happy that the G20 really agreed on a joint document that the G20 agreed on a concrete program to support Indonesia in their transition towards renewable energy and to phase out coal, that they agreed on a couple of additional items and they did not just further divide among different blocks, be it the BRICS or the G7 or um, other groups of states. So I think, honestly, I'm happy that China is now talking again to the United States. And I'm happy to see that um, the European Union and actually a couple of industrialist countries have been teaming up at the COP with developing countries to oppose any attempt to abandon the commitment of 1.5 degrees and to really agree on concrete work programs for further mitigation efforts. So these are all positive signs. Am I naive and underestimate the effect of non-decisions that took place or that didn't take place actually at the COPs? I don't think so. I think the COPs are always and always have been the smallest common denominator. Again, if the reference for judging the outcomes of the COP is what would be needed, then yes, we would need a global community of governments coming together and really coming up with a decent plan that is aligned with the Paris Climate Agreement and that would really help governments on the national and the regional level then to really put the switches towards sustainable development, towards investment into renewable, towards regenerative agriculture, and so on and so forth. 
Thank God climate action has not been only decided on the COP process or on the G20 for that matter, but pretty much on the local level, on the regional level, on the national level of many countries. And there is so much more happening on these levels than that you would see on the international stage. So I'm not, I'm not too pessimistic, to be honest. I really appreciate you highlighting all the work that's happening at different levels, local, regional, national. A lot of our conversations have been focused at the global level, which is critically important. And I agree with you. I think multilateralism is under threat, but I think it's critically important. I can't imagine a world without it. So yeah, I think we would immediately start to reinvent it. Exactly. And and just be totally fractious as a global community when we really need to try to yeah. bring the global community together as, as imperfect as that is. Um, but we can't forget everything that's happening everywhere else at all these other levels. And I think our guests have so brilliantly um, shone a light on all that other action, even though we have been you know, somewhat focused on the global. Hearing from them about their experiences and the work that is you know, happening all around the world in so many different communities and so many different scales is certainly inspiring, does give one hope. So with that, we want to thank you all for listening to Accelerating Climate Solutions. If you missed any of the episodes, you can find them all online. Simply Google Accelerating Climate Solutions podcast or look us up wherever you get your podcasts. And I like to say it's also a fantastic way of learning more from you, our guests, our audience. Please keep telling us what really matters for you, thoughts you had on particular interventions uh, and takes within this podcast. We want to continue the conversation with you on how to accelerate climate solutions in your country or in your community. So tell us more on Twitter or LinkedIn. We're at F20 platform. And you can find the Global Alliance for the Future of Food on Twitter at futureoffood.org. So signing off for the last episode of this first series. Much looking forward to our next series coming soon. I'm Stefan Schurich. And I'm Ruth Richardson. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>